You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. If you, as a precursor to the, the message, if you were to jump through this real quick, you'd say, man, this is, just looks like a legal transaction of, per, of someone buying a piece of property. And you're like, man, what could we ever get out of this? And I kind of joke a little bit with Joe, um, because I seem to get these really obscure passages when he leaves. So he is not here. He's in Macedonia doing wonderful things. And he's like, hey, why don't you take and preach on this passage? But there are some incredible, beautiful things that are in this passage, and I hope that we'll be able to see, uh, see those this morning. Um, but before I begin, uh, we, we were singing, and as Chris talked about, being no longer slaves to fear, slaves to sin. Uh, and we sang about our God, who is a faithful God. Uh, as believers, we have, really, that's been given to us, freedom. Uh, no longer being slaves to sin. I mean, that nagging sense of, man, I really want to do that, right? That gets in us sometimes when we want to do those things contrary to what God wants us to be doing. You don't have to give in to it. It doesn't have control over us. We have been given freedom indeed. And so he said, if God says that we are forgiven, accept that. And then walk in that freedom completely. It's going to be tough. It might be rough but God's given us the power of the Spirit to walk through it, confess the sins to Him, confess your sins to one another. Um, God says through the prophet Isaiah, says, God is speaking, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, that I will not remember your sins. And then he puts in this rhetorical statement, well, put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case saying that we come back to God, God, no, you're going to remember all these sins. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> that you may be proved right. And so I would encourage you, if you are setting with some besetting sin that is a weight that seems so horrendously um, dragging you along, dragging you down, confess it to one another. Find someone that you can share it with. Bring it out to the light. Um, because once it's brought out to, to, into the light, that it, it becomes de-shamed, and then you can begin to walk in that freedom. Amen. Start recognizing that dead man, the old man that's been chained to us, <laughs> and expose him, saying, hey, I'm no longer going to obey what this guy is saying. I don't have to obey giving in to every twist and turns of our, of our heart and the flesh desires, um, but to walk in freedom in that. Once you confess it and walk in freedom, you've been forgiven and free indeed. So yeah, we are in chapter 23 in Genesis. I hope that you are being strengthened in your faith, growing closer to our God, the ever-living one, the one that we have sung about and just spoke about as faithful. That through our time going through Genesis, that you find yourself really drawing closer to him, not just filled with information, but our prayer is that you are being truly transformed by the word. Abraham, the father of faith, we now get to his, in his story, he's about 135, 137 years old. And from this point on, from this chapter, he will live for almost another 40 years until he lives to the right young age of 175, which we'll get to in chapter 25 in about three weeks, uh, Lord willing. 
Uh, we have read about the promises that God will make to Abraham. He will make him into a great nation. His descendants will be like the stars in the sky and as the dust of the earth. That all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And that the land of Canaan will be given to him and his descendants forever. The promise of countless descendants has been realized in that miraculous birth of the promised son Isaac, or Isaac, through whom the world will be blessed through the ultimate promised son, the skull-crushing redeemer seed in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Last week, we went through in what is called in Hebrew the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac in which we saw so many types and shadows that point to the amazing life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about this, these types and shadows, uh, another thing that is in, kind of as an aside, uh, when they read, they read the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac during Rosh Hashanah, or the, their, the Jewish New Year, the Feast of Blowing, or the Feast, and what they would do is they, would read the expelling of Ishmael the day before, and then read about the promised son of uh, Isaac in chapter 22, and then as a celebratory, they will blow on ram's horns, all pointing back and reminding them of the goodness and graciousness of God. This is an aside. As we come to this next section in our historical narrative, it would first appear, like I said at the beginning, just a recorded business transaction. And if we were just to read through this chapter real quickly and check it off, hey, I've read my chapter for the day, uh, I believe that we're going to miss a lot of the subtleties that lie in the text. Not some, I'm not talking about hidden messages, trying to add up all the letters together to form some secret message that's not there, but those that lie directly in the text that give it its meaning. And we live, amazingly, in a wonderful time, especially on this side of the cross, especially in this period of time in redemptive history, having the canon of Scripture now complete, that we can begin to see all these subtleties in a new light. And we can understand these truths contained in Scripture through the Holy Spirit as he guides us into the truth. But before we begin chapter 23, I want to take a look at the last four verses of the previous chapter that we covered last week when we learned again about the Akedah by the binding of Isaac. At the very end of that chapter, we have this in Genesis chapter 22, the last four verses in 20 and 24. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Oats, his firstborn. Booz, his brother. Komoel, the father of Aram. Kased, Hazo, Pildash, Yadlaf, and Betuel. Betuel fathered Rivka, or Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Tevach, and Gaham, and Tahash, and Mahaka. It seems interesting that this is inserted after the binding of Isaac, and before this discussion of property is talked about. But it is purposeful. Everything in Scripture has been recorded for a reason. You see, Abraham heard the news about his family and their growth, the expansion of the family that lives outside of the promised land. That his brothers had eight boys, and then four more via his concubine, someone who's good with math, eight plus four is? Twelve. Twelve sons. Twelve sons of the promise. 
there very could be that it's being comparison being made between the sons that are not part of the promised and the ones that will be part of the promised line because we no longer hear about these other 12 sons after this. We're introduced in this little section to the wife of the promised son, the great niece of Abraham, the only female listed here in Rebekah. Imagine Abraham, who only has two boys, one of the promise, of course, and with his beautiful wife Sarah and Ishmael, the one through the bondwoman Hagar. Both of these solely given through the grace of God. And solely through the grace of God did Abraham hear the call from God to leave his country and his family, as God chose Abraham out of the multitude in order that God himself would be glorified. And through Abraham, the whole world would ultimately be blessed in Jesus Christ. So at this point in the narrative, we get to chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. And in your handout, I've increased my note ability handouts, no longer just blanks. So I have three points in here uh, to be able to go through, and hopefully they'll get clear, more clear as we go through this passage and through this chapter. It's a death, a destination, and a deposit. So Abraham and Sarah have now been in the land, setting us a little bit of a context, in the land for 60 years. And they have a son of the son, the son of the promise, who is now about 36 or 37 years old. And already we have your first part A, a death. A death has occurred. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriat, Kiriat Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So just to give us a quick overview of where we're at, have a map, and hopefully those of you in the back can or cannot see, but hopefully you can. Uh, this is the, um, I'm just going to turn the heat down a little bit, if you don't mind. It's a little warm up here. <laughs> the 70, okay. Uh, so we have the map, Mediterranean Sea, here's a big blue blob. We have Egypt down here, Libya, Saudi Arabia. This little red blob here is where Israel is. This is where our narrative is taking place here. And for those that would like to know where Joe and John and David and Gotse are, that's this yellow blob. That's North Macedonia, just north of Greece. So that's, they're, they're pretty close to the promised land. But anyway, the red blob is where this is taking place. So yeah, please pray for Joe. Uh, Dave Fried said, Gotse Kalinov and John Wadsworth, as they are in Macedonia, making connections. And if you aren't part of the uh, the church app, I'd encourage you to do so. They're posting pictures of their journey and the things that they're doing, people that they're ministering with and to, and the food that they're eating. It looks really good. So this begins the narrative. And I forgive me, I would actually like to read this chapter. It's only 20 verses. It, it does help to get us a, a read the overview first and then get through it verse by verse. So Sarah, so I re, we read first the first two verses to give us our context, and now we are, we're in Israel. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing, 
I should bury my dead out of my sight. Hear me, and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people, and he said to Ephron, In the hearing of the people of the land, But if you, if you will, hear me. I give price to the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what's that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had, named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So... The field of Ephron and the Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, and the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before, before all who went into the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a bearing place by the Hittites. So we have, the last time that we've read about Sarah was when she, it would, when she was told her husband, Abraham, was to send Hagar out and her son Ishmael and send them out away. And that's been a little over 30 years ago since that event took place back in chapter 21. And now we get her notice of death. 127 years of life, much, much too young to die. You may laugh, but death is not something that we were intended to partake in. It is the direct result of the heinous impacts of sin upon humanity. Sarah truly was a unique woman. She's the only female listed in Scripture whose death is given and listed. She was, of course, childless until 90. She's the only woman recorded in Scripture in getting a new name directly from the Lord. She was put in a king's harem, not once, but twice. And she had some unfortunate interpersonal conflicts with her servant, Hagar. She has seen the word of the Lord come fulfilled in her lifetime, in the, in the birth of her son at 90. She is the first woman who's listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And all these that are listed by faith uh, are all imperfect people though they are each commended for their faith in God. Here in verse 2, we notice that it's less that Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It's just saying that he went in to wherever Sarah was laying in her tent, uh, wherever exactly where she was interred. But the important thing here is saying that it's recorded that and he mourned and weeped for her. This is the first account that we have of a man weeping and crying for us here in Genesis chapter 23. Traditionally, mourning meant that he would have tore his clothes, would have cut, off, cut his beard, spread dust on his head, and all this would have been done 
near the corpse of Sarah. But I would encourage you, as sad as that scene may be, and especially as believers, when a fellow believer dies, it's natural to mourn and to weep. And as we mourn, it should not be as, as the world does, because the world has no hope. They have no idea what is to come afterward, even if there is anything after this. But as we mourn, it should be a time in which we demonstrate our faith. As sad as it might be and sad as it is, to have the expectancy, uh, oh, I can't think of the words, expectancy, thank you, of what is to come. Oh, I had the honor and the privilege to see my father-in-law pass away. Uh, he was in our house. We had him in as, as hospice care. He was a believer. He'd been a pastor for 30-plus years. Absolutely loved the Lord. And though we miss him physically, we know he is in a far better place. Right. But as we see, as we gathered around him, singing worship songs, telling him, well done, good and faithful servant, and enter into the joy of your Lord. It was so absolutely incredible that it spoke as a testimony to the hospice worker saying, I have never seen anything like this before. Amen. So it just proves, again, that faith in the reality of us as believers in Christ who have another life, another life coming, <laughs> right. a new life to live, that our hope doesn't end here. Our hope goes beyond the grave. But isn't it interesting, as we read what Jesus talks about when he refers to Abraham, when talking about the resurrection, when he's talking with those sad, sad Sadducees, they are so sad, Chris, for they do not believe in a resurrection. But God promises us life after death. In Matthew 22, it says, As for the resurrection of the dead, we have you not read? What is said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Right. Notice what Jesus says here, I am the God of Abraham. By this time, when Jesus spoke these words, Abraham would have been dead for almost 1,900 years. Jesus says he is currently the God of Abraham, meaning that Abraham is alive after death. For life after death is no problem for the creator of the universe. To deny that type of power to God, to deny him the ability to give life after death would so limit him and therefore make him less than God. Life after death is part of our incredible hope that we have as believers, knowing that there is more to life than just what we are currently experiencing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, <laughs> we are all of we are all of we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So there is hope. <laughs> so recall the name Sarah, which means princess. The princess has now died in the promised land. Notice that phrase, the in the land of Canaan. This will set as a bookend of this chapter, as we'll see later, that we'll reach this phrase again at the end. And it's there for telling us what truly is the focus of this chapter, for it's all about the land. 
to the place where Sarah died, where the princess died in Hebron, is located in the Judean hill country. It sits about 3,300 feet, for those that like to know. It's about the same elevation as the Cedar Grove exit up on Highway 50, to kind of give us an idea of what the topography might be. They do get snow there. Approximately 19 miles southeast of Jerusalem and 23 miles east of Beersheba. So I'll show a map. Hopefully you can, you can see this to give us a, a uh, 30,000-foot view of where this is all taking place. The land of Canaan, all of Israel. Here we have the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. There's a blue blob up here. That's Mount Moriah. That's where the Akedah took place, the binding of Isaac in Jerusalem. Down here, this yellow one is Beersheba. And then here in this little red blob, this is the, the Machpelah. This is the area in which our narrative is taking place here in the hill country of Judea. This is in the same area where Abraham and Sarah set up their camp amongst the oaks of Mamre, in which chapter 13 told us is in Hebron. This is the same place, this, that red blob, is where Sarah heard the word of the Lord at, that she would have a son in her old age. Again, these place names and these details of Scripture are important. They're not just giving us a geography lesson but giving us a theological lesson. For these place names should help us recall what took place in those areas. Again, reminding us of what God did and his faithfulness to us. As believers in Jesus Christ, again, when a fellow believer dies, we truly have hope. Hope founded solely upon the resurrection of Christ. Hope that, that, fellow, that the fellow believer is now in paradise, as Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him when they died, today you will be with me in paradise, that death is not the end. Verse 3, in, our, in chapter 23 of Genesis, Then Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, so those of you that love ancient history may think, well, the Hittites, these are the northern tribe up in Turkey that went and destroyed ancient Babylon in 1500. Well, these aren't the same Hittites. These are a different type of group of people. These are technically the sons of Heth, who was the son of Canaan, hence the land of Canaan. So these Hittites are technically the sons of Heth. And these Hittites, again, are listed amongst the people groups that already exist in the land that Abraham is to go out and take and conquer uh, over these people, as well as Joshua is to come into the land and take over all these groups that already exist in the land. So these sons of Heth are here. And Abraham leaves his wife's corpse and seeks a place to procure a proper burying place for the princess. He introduces himself to these sons of Heth, saying, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So as a sojourner and one who is just passing through, and as a foreigner, because recall that Abraham is indeed one who came from outside of the land, from the land of Ur, and his extended family that we saw that grew and exploded in size is up in Haran. But as a sojourner and a foreigner, he has no rights to own property. He has no rights to own land. Hence, his request for property in order to bury the princess, he's not asking for them to give it to him as a free gift. But what he's doing is he's asking them as permission to permit Abraham to have property amongst them. And by stating that he wants property to bury his wife, he is declaring that this place, this land, the land of Canaan, is where he is going to stay. 
for burials usually took place near where the family lived, as would have been done in their own property they would have already owned. But Abraham, Abraham has none. And so this request of the sons of Heth are a declaration of Abraham as staying in the land, doing so by faith because he has been promised that this land is his and his descendants everlasting. He's not going to take his dead wife back and bury her back where they came from. He's not going back to his people. He's in the promised land, and he is going to stay. He has been promised the entire land of Canaan, but he currently doesn't own even a single bit of it at this point. Recall that there was another promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. But now, his wife is dead. And she's a bit younger than himself. So he needs somehow to be able to secure a place, not only for himself, but more pressing for his wife. And so out of faith, he pursues acquiring a burial place. As believers, we also are currently sojourners and foreigners while living out our life here on this earth. This life as we currently know it. It's just temporary We too shall pass away like Sarah and enter into our destination, into the presence of Jesus and see him face to face. For mankind was originally created to dwell with God, meaning that uninterrupted, intimate fellowship with our creator was the original intent. However, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that fellowship was instantly broken. And that place where we were created to dwell with God was shut up. And God placed a cherubim there and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back. However, the amazing grace and mercy of God that he already had in plan to restore mankind back into right relationship with him. But it would necessitate a death, a death of such magnitude that only God himself could make such a thing happen. This, of course, being accomplished through Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And those that accept this most magnificent truth are allowed back into that type of relationship that God originally created us for, intimate fellowship with him. But we are limited. Limited in that we obviously have a physical body, which is made for our life here on this earth. It was not made for life everlasting. These bodies that we currently have, as Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth, are perishing are dishonorable, are weak, and it's all due to sin. But however, we each, as those that call upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, are citizens of heaven, and as such, we will receive a new body, one that will not die, that will not grow old, that will not get sore from shoveling all the snow, that will be pure, that will not fail, and will be glorified. Imagine that. Imagine reaching the final destination of our journey of faith, that very last step of salvation, glorification, meaning we would be freed from the very presence of sin. Can't even imagine that. No more weakness, no more pain, no more tears. But we wait. We wait until a time. Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
This, brothers and sisters, is just a piece of what's included in our citizenship in heaven. It is something that will be revealed to us as, of course, it is yet still future, but a reality that it will be so far beyond any of our imaginations and way beyond any of our expectations. So now we get to the destination. Part, part two. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await our Savior, not in the sense that he has not come already, for he most certainly has. You see, he came the first time, as the author in Hebrews says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. He will come again to save us, to bring us to our home, and that is our cry of Maranatha. Come, O Lord, come quickly. And he will return as king. So when we cry out, Maranatha, come, O Lord, it is our cry for our king and for his kingdom. And as, and as we yearn for his return, but for those that have loved his appearing, scripture tells us that there we will receive a crown of righteousness. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And this wonderful crown of righteousness is something that we will be able to return to the Lord in thanks for eternity. It is part of those things in which we will receive that have eternal value, eternal worth. Not wood, hay, or stubble. Those things, as we pass through the fire, we burned up. But these things in which God has promised to give us certain things will have everlasting. Store up for yourself things in heaven that have eternal value. Yearn and long for his return, to be able to return back to him because of his goodness and grace. So we await his return. And as we await his return, we are called to live out our lives that reflect the citizenship of which country we belong to. Not like the world that surrounds us, that inundates us every day, but one that reflects the standards of the kingdom that we are part of, to be radically different than those around us. 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So living a life that reflects the standards of the kingdom of heaven should and needs to be grounded in the work of Jesus Christ. We should not do good works just for the sake of us feeling better about ourselves, but in response to what Jesus Christ did for us as an outward declaration of our love and adoration for him. Not dutiful obligation that's completely devoid of joy, but of utter and complete adoration. For if we love one another, if we have joy and peace and demonstrate patience, if we exhibit goodness and faithfulness, if we are gentle and we have self-control, the world will take notice. Abraham lived a completely different life than those around him, and it was noticeable. 
So when Abraham initially asks for permission to obtain a place to bury his wife, the Hittites reply here in verse 5, the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold you from his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Notice what the sons of Heth say here. They say, Shema. Maybe familiar with that word is to hear, listen, obey what we're saying. Shema us. You are a prince of God. Abraham is being recognized not as a foreigner, but obviously of someone of great importance. For God has blessed Abraham quite a bit, despite being someone who has no place to call his own, meaning he doesn't even own any property. And in this first round of dealings, they offer Abraham to bury his dead in one of their tombs, not granting him a place to call his own. So, verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. <laughs> Here, the father of faith, the one whom God has given the land as an eternal inheritance, bows in respect to the sons of Heth, these people that currently reside in the land. It's a bit of ironic. And Abraham, he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. Shema me. Thus begins round two of negotiations for the land. And entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave in Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in the presence as, a bearing, a presence as property for a burying place. Again, Abraham is asking for a cave to bury Sarah in. And there is a definite article in front of the word Machpelah. This is a place name. Not necessarily the name of the cave in which it exists, but it's a region, an area. It's the Machpelah, or Ha Machpelah. And again, Abraham is not asking the sons of Heth just to give it to him for property for free, but for a price. So verse 10, now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went into the gate of a city. The gate, the city gate, the entrance to the city, it's a, it's a place where all business transactions would have taken place. City government and judicial decisions would have taken place. It was central to all community engagement and interaction. For these gates were the only entry and exit point out of the city. There was an archaeologist, Emanuel Eisenberg, who found segments of an ancient wall in Hebron, which dated approximately the period of Abraham. And what he found were these walls were 15 feet thick. So these aren't just kind of slot barn door sliding doors here. These aren't kind of your picket fence swing gates. These are a defensive nature in their structure. And it all takes place in front of witnesses in front of everyone in the city, not just some backroom deal that's going on. It says in verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. Again, Ephron's response, Shema me, Abraham. And here he begins round three of this interchange. I give you the field. I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I'll give it to you, bury your dead. Ephron is offering to, to just give the field, and now he's offering the cave. This is more than what Abraham was initially after. Then <laughs> Abraham bowed down in front of the people again. He bows down to the one that owns his land, the one that's been promised to him. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, shema me, Ephron. This is round four. 
I give the price of the field. Accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. If the land was just given outright just to Abraham, it most certainly could have been taken back at any point. But if it, if it was bought, if he purchased it, it solely became his and his family and his descendants. Verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. Shema me, Abraham. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? Bury your dead. So now, the, finally, the price is given, and we have a deposit. A deposit on the promised land is made. A very, very small price is given, is paid, in comparison to the cost of the entire promised land. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Whatever the, whatever the value of that 400 shekels of silver would be today, we don't know exactly. No value could be placed on the burial place for a princess. Recall we are told back, though, in Genesis 13, we are told that Abraham was rich both in silver and gold. And that comes from the very first episode where Abraham told the king that his wife was his sister. Abraham was then given a thousand shekels from Abimelech as a token of his restitution for taking Sarah as his wife. And so we see Abraham would have had much silver. It would have been very rich, as Scripture says. And the reason why they would have weighed out the silver is that coin minting wouldn't have been in common use yet. That wouldn't take place for another thousand-some years. So something like this would have been weighed out in scales. This is called hack silver. It's out of mining of silver. They would have cut it up in pieces, and they would have used this uh, to weigh out uh, for the value. But notice in this interchange, and at the final interchange in which the price is given, weighs out the 400 shekels, that there's this going back and forth between Abraham and Ephron. It ends in verse 16 here, and that's a seventh interchange between these two. The deal is completed. The land is now transferred to the father of faith. And so the field of Ephron in the Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in, and all the trees that were in the field, throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham's possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. The specific details of the purchase of the land and the ownership of the property are now outlined, giving us the location with other known areas, such as Mamre. If you recall, Mamre is where Abraham moved and set up his tent and built an altar where Yahweh appeared to him right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the place where the promised son was given. So Abraham, who initially asks for a place to bury his beloved wife, gets a field, gets a cave, and a whole bunch of trees. And all of this was done in, within the city gates, with witnesses to who is now the rightful owner of the property. Again, where did this transaction take place? Well, within the city gate. This should bring us to remind us of, the, of another promise from God. After Abraham passes the test in this last chapter, God tells him, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. There could be an illusion somehow pointing back to this promise, in which this transaction now, Abraham is getting a portion of the land from the enemies in the land. After this, verse 19, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, 
east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. This place where Sarah is buried, this cave of Machpelah, uh, we can prove with almost a very high certainty of where the location is. Uh, for that, where that red blob sits, again, that's the region of the Machpelah. And if we have another picture, this structure is built on top of the cave there. And this structure is built by King Herod. It is the largest standing structure from, from Herod that's still standing today, built between 31 and 4 BC. And this is sitting on top of those caves. And inside, if you were to go in there, if you get, get an opportunity, if you go to Israel and make it to Hebron, and are allowed inside, you'll go and you'll see these certain grave markers, these what they call cenopaths. They're just big empty tomb markers because actually in the far end of this building is where the cave sits. So they just have these empty grave markers inside. The bodies aren't in those markers if you go uh, inside there to Hebron. So, but notice this phrase here at the very end, the land of Canaan. This is the seventh time we've seen this phrase. Again, seven in Scripture is referring to, pointing to completeness. So now we have the land. The land has been acquired, but yet a very tiny portion, a deposit has been made on the whole. In the land of Canaan, twice we are told that Abraham was to go to the land where God would show him, to the land of Canaan. It's mentioned as the place where Abraham, Abram settled after he and his nephew separated because their herds and families grew too large. It's mentioned in chapter 16, where Abraham took Hagar, the bondwoman, and had the son of the bondwoman. God mentions it as part as the promised land, and Sarah dies in the land of Canaan. And as our chapter ends, it mentions the land of Canaan, again, pointing to completeness, God's faithfulness to Abraham. For now, Abraham has a piece of the promised land. Verse 20, the field and the cave that's in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So Abraham has now acquired again this small piece. He's become a landowner at the young age of 135 years old. And this burying place is now going to be the place where Abraham will be buried, as well as Isaac, as well as Rebekah, as well as Jacob, and as well as Leah. Notice the reason for the land is to bury the dead. Not to build a huge house, not to establish a settlement or to build a kingdom, because Abraham knew something. He yearned for something, something far greater than what the land represented, in which his wife was going to be buried in. Hebrews 11 tells us, These all died in faith, not having received the things that promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire, and as we should as well, desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So let us press on, brothers and sisters, like Abraham did, straining forward to what lies ahead, always thinking of the kingdom of God. Let it invade and permeate every one of our thoughts, every, every moment of every day. 
as we prepare to enter that city that's been prepared for us, living our lives daily to reflect the kingdom of the citizen, living, reflecting the kingdom of which we are citizens of. So I'll close with a passage from the words of Paul to young Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live life self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. As believers, we are part of that treasured possession. So our cry continually should be, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. The King will come, and he is on his way.